I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. This is She Said, She Said. Fryer is the CEO of technology company Nextdoor. She's working to create local solutions to community and neighborhood challenges. More interesting, perhaps, is that she's working to combat loneliness by encouraging us to get off of our devices and engage directly with our neighbors. It's not a message that you hear all the time. Sarah comes to Nextdoor having held senior positions at some of the biggest and most well-regarded names in corporate America, Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, and more recently, Salesforce and Square. I'm delighted that she's willing to share her insights and perspectives with us today. Sarah, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight to be here. Well, I am delighted to have you. And I'm interested to learn more about Nextdoor. What is Nextdoor? Great. Well, thank you for that question, because there's nothing I love to talk about more. (laughs) Um, Nextdoor, maybe I'll start just with our purpose. So Nextdoor's purpose is to empower neighbors everywhere to build stronger local communities. And I say it that way because every word in there is important. Clearly, we're starting grassroots, so it's your neighborhood and your neighbors. We're a platform to empower, we won't do. Um, It's really only neighbors that can kind of change what's going on in their community. And then our goal is to build strength into that community. And so help neighbors get to know one another, to stay connected and informed, and to help them get stuff done just in their everyday lives. Yeah, I know that the notion of loneliness has become a big focus for you. Mm -hmm. We're now seeing a number of new books that are being written on this topic. Talk about how your platform is working to address this notion of sort of isolation and loneliness. Yeah, I mean, it's becoming almost a national epidemic. I think we're going to be talking about this for the next decade plus. So unfortunately, when you look at all of the demographic um, analysis, all of just you know, generally how younger generations are feeling. We have an epidemic of loneliness going on. And in fact, if you look at things like suicide rates, they're also climbing. Now the why, it's, it's hard to get under the hood of, but clearly there's been a shift in our society away from community more towards the individual. If you go back, I could get very wonky on you into like the 70s and 80s was when it really started to fall away in the US. People stopped joining things like their local church, maybe their local rotary club, their local school board, whatever it was. And it has big impacts on loneliness, on civil engagement, um, on a lot of things that strengthen communities. Now, what has Nextdoor done? Um, We are starting, you know, everything we stand for is about building those ground up connections. But we've also tried in some ways to jolt the system back to life. So we started a combat loneliness campaign, actually out of the UK originally. Mm -hmm. Um, We found that neighbors took the challenge, which was to spend one to two hours per week doing something with a neighbor that you thought could be lonely. And we found it particularly worked for seniors who might have, say, lost a spouse coming up to the holiday period. Mm -hmm. People got super excited. They started to post on other broad social networks, hey, I took the next door neighborhood challenge. I'm fighting loneliness. And then it jumped the pond, as we would say in the UK. So I'm I'm British originally into France. And we see it happening there. It's called La Porte est ouvert. So our, our door is open. And we're starting to see it get some traction just around 
all of the countries that we're in. So again, a grassroots effort that we think step by step can begin to create stronger community bonds. Talk a bit about how Nextdoor differs from other platforms that also connect us, but perhaps I think your perspective may be that it also in some ways is pulling us apart. So talk a bit about that. Sure. So, I mean, back to that generation that has lived through this technology revolution, right? In some ways, they're a generation that has never been more connected. I can literally talk to a friend back in Europe in an instant. I can text message. I can hop on many social platforms to do that. And yet people talk about never feeling more lonely or isolated in their world. And so what Nextdoor has done from the beginning is had this huge principle about how do we get people to connect potentially online because you come to next door because you don't know your neighbors and we help you make that connection but we do it in the spirit of how do we get you offline and get you back into a physical world so I mean a kind of random anecdote but I was with my I saw my nephew sitting in a group of friends recently um, 16 year old and they're all on their phones they've all got that pane of glass right in front of their eyes and when I kind of asked what they were doing, they were texting each other. It's was like, what, what, what is wrong with you people? Have a conversation. Or this weekend, I sat with my son, and we had this wonderful kind of moment. So he's 11. And we were in a cafe. We looked to our left, and there was a younger couple, probably, I don't know, maybe early 30s, who literally were sitting opposite each other, but both on their phones. And every once in a while, they would turn a phone around and show it to the other person, but continue to be on their phones. But to her right, there was an older couple who were just talking. It was just Saturday morning. They were just having a conversation. And I said to my son, here's the generational difference. What are you going to do for this not to be you? You can't be stuck behind this pane of glass. Mm -hmm. And so I think these conversations, we have to be having them across all of our communities, regardless of demographic, regardless of age. Um, But how do we bring people back into physical world and back into having physical connections? Because otherwise, our social fabric is just getting ripped apart. So, so one of the challenges is obviously talking to people, to the younger generation, talking mm-hmm. to your son who's 13? 11. 11. He's my 11-year-old. 11. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have an 11-year-old as well. Um, but, but talking to them about what this means, and my guess is they would respond and say, oh, no, you know, we're talking to each other. We're not yeah. lonely. What are you talking? You know, what does this mean? Like, how, how do you help them understand this yeah. notion of actually connecting face-to-face and the difference that that makes? Yeah. So, you know, beyond just telling them to talk to their friends because they're going to embrace whatever technology is there. Look, you know, my parents look at me and they feel like I have an addiction to technology. So it's all generational. Um, Going back to, you know, why in the 70s did this drop off start to happen in the U.S.? Many people talk about the rise of television. So people moved off their front step and where they maybe talked to their neighbors in the afternoons or. um, But instead, with TV, yes, you were learning more about the world, but you were doing it sitting inside your living room. So, again, you kind of started to close off. So I think in talking to every generation, um, but. I care a lot about how my kids, it's maybe less about the one-to-one with their friends, but it's going back to how do you become more community-spirited? And so that could be things like helping them understand the power of volunteering, the power of just doing that nice little single first step, maybe lifting up that newspaper and throwing it up 
onto the step for your for your neighbor so it's not lying in a puddle Mm -hmm. or maybe it's going a step further right i see my school starting to embrace much more of physical volunteering so not something you're going to do in an isolated way but how do we take kids um you know maybe it's environmental cleanups maybe it's working with the local you know center for the disabled whatever it is it's getting our children to understand that it's not just the good they do for the community there's actually this amazing power of reciprocity back where you feel so much better about yourself too and I think a lot of that you know I feel like I grew up with that and I want to see more of that spirit come back into U.S. but also come into the global population. What about the impact on small business? Mm -hmm. You know the vast majority of small businesses are started by women. Yes. You've just had a conversation (laughs) with the head of the Small Business Administration um, just a few days ago Talk about the potential impact for women entrepreneurs and small business owners as it relates to Nextdoor. Sure. So uh, it's a topic I feel really strongly about on many fronts. So I've spent the last you know almost decade of my life highly focused on small businesses because I'm a deep believer that when you see local businesses thrive, neighborhoods thrive, or communities thrive. And I use the word local because small is important, and I'll talk to that in just a second. But local businesses can be everything from the very big, from Walmart the whole way down to the small business being created. And all of them have a very important role to play in, in making that community thrive. Now, on the on the female entrepreneurship front, yes, super near and dear to my heart. So you're right. Women inherently are tend to be more entrepreneurial. They start many more mainstream businesses. They face a lot of challenges. So I have a nonprofit called Ladies Who Launch. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a pun. Um, but the point is to bring to those women some education. So often they don't have the tools and tips and tricks at their fingertips. So we're trying to find a way to just consolidate that. Uh, The community building. So again, just knowing that it's not just you, right? Everyone looks, I think, at successful business uh, owners and businesses, and it always just looks like it was straight up and to the right. And the reality of every business, and I say this from my heart, Mm. is you're always just hustling. Like it always feels like it's 10 things that just didn't work and then like you get that one thing and I think sharing that in a community way is very very powerful for women they feel really strong peer mentorship is incredibly important for them and then the final piece for me is inspiration like you can't be what you can't see so how do we get women that not just women women and men who have in some ways made it um, but how do we get them to tell their story Um, and that was like one of the fun things of talking to Linda who heads up the the SBA um, Um, was just hearing some of her war stories, frankly, of how she built her business. Yeah. You have war stories of your own, and you have an amazing, (laughs) amazing resume that really, you know, when when you look at your resume holistically, it's very interesting to see you land right here. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a bit about that. I'm especially interested in how difficult it can be to leave one entity, especially when you love it, to go to another. Let's talk about where you started, though. You studied metallurgy. Yep. Well done, you said. Which I had to look up and practice pronouncing. (laughs) (laughs) What is metallurgy and how did you sort of walk us through how you got to this point? (laughs) Yeah, probably slightly crazy and definitely better lucky than good. I have been helped a lot along the way. So I take no credit for kind of those crazy steps. Um, They were mentors, the folks who kind of just gave me that push. I did start out, so I grew up in Northern Ireland. The community gene is strong in this one because I grew up in a really 
really strong community, and my parents are both, you know, nurturers of community. But I wanted to do something different. Like, I did not want to stay in Northern Ireland. I didn't want to go to university there. That was kind of the path that everyone wanted me to be on. And, you know, typically you become a doctor or you become an accountant were the two jobs that, for some reason, everyone (laughs) wanted you to be. My brother is a doctor. And I was just super curious. I loved taking things apart, and that kind of was my engineering gene. So I was super lucky. I applied to Oxford. I got in. Um, I got to study this crazy degree called actually MEM, so Metallurgy, Economics, and Management, kind of later became material science because we weren't only about metals. We Mm -hmm. actually did a lot of stuff on new materials and polymers and plastics and all sorts of things. Um, And the reason I chose it was just sheer curiosity about the world. Um, And I loved math, science. So it was a great way to kind of also do a lot of that. And that set me, you know, on this kind of crazy journey. I, you know, zigged and zagged a lot. I had my first internship working on a gold mine in Ghana, which, you know, again, not many people have done that. I'm not sure I would want my daughter to go do it. But it was an eye opener in a good way about the power of seeing technology in action on a large scale. We were productionizing a biochemical process. But it also, in some ways, you know, was a bit of a downer because it was a very male environment. Probably, you know, after that, Wall Street was like a total home, like it was easy um, because working on a mine, it turns out (laughs) not a lot of women hanging out with you. And I came back from that a little despondent because I felt like, wow, I, you know, thought I was on this path. This is what I really want to do. But I see no ability to be successful in this sort of environment. And that caused a zag. I ended up working for McKinsey. I, you know, I always say I kind of went to this very white collar then path for a while. But it put in me that seed of how do I make sure this doesn't happen to some other young woman Mm -hmm. down the line? How do we make sure that when she looks at an environment that might feel very male, she still feels like she has the tools and the support network to stay and to kind of have the grit and tenacity to keep at it. And mm-hmm. I see this in Silicon Valley all the time yeah. as we look at STEM and particularly the world of engineering. On the question of STEM, do you and, you, and we think about um, how do we get more young women interested in pursuing STEM careers? And it sounds like from your perspective, you kind of rebelled against what was sort of expected of you <laughs> yep. and went in a different direction. But was there anything else about your background, your upbringing? What was it that made STEM so interesting to you? So as I think about it from my upbringing, but then what can we learn in some ways for for young? It like starts very, very young in girls. You know, I was lucky I went to a very small school. There was never the sense that girls couldn't be great at the, the science um, sciences and math. In fact, like my girlfriends and I, we like rocked the math and science over the boys. We had them in every test. We were always like the girls always were at the top of the class. Yes, oftentimes are. Yeah. And <laughs> and there was never that moment where, you know, I, I hear a lot of it and I actually have seen it even in, you know, my kids' classes. I remember going in to um you know, the parent to come in and help. And I was helping with math or something. And I think it was like a fourth grade class. And I remember one of the kids saying something to me. One of the girls said, Mrs. Riley, I call my alter ego, my husband's name. <laughs> didn't change, rampant feminist here, didn't change my name. <laughs> Mrs. Riley, but girls aren't good at math. And I like I almost cried in the classroom. You know, and I had like, I was like, that's absolutely not true, blah, 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 blah. But I realized like for so many girls, it starts very, very early 
this insidious view that somehow they're not good at math. And there are, if you look again at the any of the kind of analysis that have been done, these breakpoints happen in girls right as they start school. So when they hit kind of kindergarten, there's a moment where confidence levels shift. It happens again kind of through the puberty years, kind of the 13 through 16. And then it happens one more time as they go to university. And the third part is often more attached to a feeling actually of not feeling physically secure mm. because it's the first time in their life where there is this feeling of like being a woman in in a male world can actually feel very physically intimidating. And so, you know, in those breakpoints, I think we can do a lot to do insertions and really give people role models. So again, you can't be what you can't see. So how do we show our girls um, and talk about, you know, astronauts as women? How do we talk about doctors as women? How do we talk about engineers as women? And a part of that, I think, has to be showing them real-life women doing it, but also almost like pushing ourselves to a point of discomfort where, you know, we, we instead of saying, you know, he and she, like we often put the male first in every conversation and actually try to flip it a lot and put the female first. So even in people's names, like often when people introduce a couple, they'll introduce the man first and the woman second. And I think they're just all of these micro things that happen in society that we need to flip um, and sometimes call it out when we see it and say, hey, it's totally fine that the world is this way around, but also it can be the opposite. Mm-hmm. And so more and more of that, I think, for our, for our young folks and hopefully then continue it up through as they get careers and, and start motoring through that career. So you made the shift from McKinsey to Goldman Sachs, yeah. but then your shift from Goldman Sachs going forward was yeah. even more interesting, I, <laughs> I would dare say, and yeah. and probably challenging. Talk about that yeah. shift and how you made it and what the thought process was. Sure. Yeah. So um, you're right. I, I went into Goldman coming out of business school. I'm super um, lucky that I got into Stanford and got to see this whole Silicon Valley thing unfold. And I remember my tutor at Stanford being just so irate that I wasn't going to start up at that stage. Um, and frankly, it was twofold. I had a ton of debt that I needed to pay off, and that whole startup equity thing did not pay the bills until later. Right, right. <laughs> and then second, uh, secondly, I needed a visa. Right? I was a fuzzy foreigner, um, and I needed a way to stay in the U.S. So I went to Goldman thinking it would be more of a sojourn. I'd be there for a year or two. And suddenly, 11 years later, I was still there. And so it was comfortable. I was good at my job. I liked it. Um, I, I was a researcher analysts. I got to be kind of a a nerd and go very deep on technology. But it just felt more and more empty. I felt like, why do I do what I do? The financial crisis happened. My parents kept saying, what do you? It was like that moment where they were kind of like, oh, you're a banker. Like, this doesn't (laughs) sound good. What do you do? And, you know, and as I already said, my brother is a doctor. And so it's very clear what he does. He likes to put it, you know, I'm just saving lives today. What have you done? And so I really did feel this sense of, of emptiness, like I'm, I, I'm not creating any change or impact in the world. And so I did do kind of a scary thing, which is, you know, I kind of pulled the brake on my career and was like, okay, I'm going to do a complete 180. I'm going to take the leap. I, I don't know if I'm going to be successful, but life is too short. Mm-hmm. Like I have to make the jump. And so I luckily jumped over into a great company called Salesforce that still is on this growth, you know, acceleration. I got to be there at a super interesting time. The company was about 5,000 people growing like a weed. And I got to sit at the table with the executive team with Mark Benioff, who's one of the world's great entrepreneurs. And Mark was a great mentor. And he was very gender blind. He didn't 
care at all what what I looked like. He just wanted performance. <laughs> Show me the money. And, you know, again, those environments are very good for folks who might be a little different. Because, again, if you can make it about results, you know, then I think a lot of the other layers of society come off the table and you just be what you are and be the best you can be. Yeah. What's your advice for other people who may be contemplating a really big, scary Mm -hmm. career shift like you went through? What did you, what was your process? Yeah, so... um, And did you get feedback, right? Did you talk to people around you? All of that, for sure. I mean, I've just made another massive leap to come over to Nextdoor to become the CEO of Nextdoor. And so that process is very fresh in my memory. So, I mean, one thing in life, I'm a big believer in getting an adrenaline rush every day. And I tell people that all the time. And they look at me like, really, every day? I'm like, absolutely. You know, when you're you're on that table and your heart stopped working, the thing they shoot into you is adrenaline. So it's true (laughs) life. So if you're not getting that, what are you doing? So one is like, are you feeling comfortable? right? Like, do you wake up every day and you spring out of bed? And do you feel like a little over your skis? And if you're not feeling that, for me, I'm like, okay, I'm not living. So that's kind of one data point is always like, where am I at in my own journey? So that notion of getting comfortable with uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I love that. I just saw um, a panel of a bunch of stand-up comedians talking. And they talked about, you know, the person said, what does it feel like before you walk out from behind the curtain? And you're about to do stand-up. And it's impromptu stand-up. And so in some ways... There's no script. I mean, it's kind of terrible. It's like life. There's no script. And they, and one of them said, and I, I believe this so wholeheartedly, that when you feel that moment where you have adrenaline, so literally the prickly feeling, the fight or flight mechanism going into, into, into full, um, you know, 100 mile an hour action, like love it. Like, embrace that. And in fact, when you stop getting that, it's time to kind of push yourself to the next thing. Like, I used to feel that a lot if I did public speaking. And today, I don't get it as much, and I actually miss it. And so I keep trying to find what's that new edge. So one thing is that. Uh, Second thing is definitely talk to people. Um, But remember, it's all input. Like, no one has the answer. And therefore, try to seek really diverse perspectives. So look for people that you know inherently will disagree with you and will give you that whole devil's advocate position. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, find your place where you are creative and thoughtful. Um, for me, I'm a big hiker. There is nothing I love more than seeing a mountain. I'm like, okay, get my hiking boots on, off I go. And I'm lucky to live on a mountain so I can head out most weekends. And so I think I've walked the feet of my husband in the last few months as I made this decision on the next door. But I find when I'm out and walking and talking, or sometimes it's just when I'm by myself thinking, like there's something about being in nature that I find very calming. And it kind of allows, I'm sure there's a chemical reaction going on, but it allows that kind of creativity to come forward Mm -hmm. and allows me to feel more zen about decisions that I'm making. And then sometimes there's just this little tip you get. And um, I'm gonna, I'll give you a little anecdote, not to kind of drone on here, but um, I was sitting on a Friday night um, and I was very close to this next door decision. And frankly, I was going back and forth. I, you know, I was at an amazing company square that did great things for small businesses. But I watched the RBG um, movie, the uh, notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And about halfway through, I mean, I, oh, I can feel the prickle now. I just felt like, wow, here is someone who from the earliest time was giving up her life to do better for society, for women. 
And like, where am I? I'm talking this big game all the time about how women have to stretch and take risks and step up and you can't be what you can't see. And so what am I fiddling around with this decision? Like, I want to look my daughter in the eye and say, I ran something. I really tried. Um, now, you never actually run something. What happens is your people run you. But, but then I did that stretch so that I can look at all those young girls coming up and say, hey, women can be great CEOs, too. And what an incredible example for your daughter and your son. I, yeah, both, actually, because as I tell him, I'm like, you're just as important, if not more so, because you're our ally. And, you know, my daughter, I'm like, you're definitely important because you got to step it up. Let's, you know, can't wait to see what you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this notion of role modeling, role modeling is so incredibly important, both for your kids and for others as well. Shifting gears just a bit. I'm interested in your thoughts on a a couple things. I listened to an interview that you did recently, and you talk about your perspective as it relates to hiring Mm -hmm. and your view about ego and titles. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to talk with us a bit about that and how ego can really get in your way. But how do you keep sort of how do you keep this in check? Where with women. Oftentimes we have a tendency to put our heads down, work really, really hard and say they will eventually notice me. (laughs) And sometimes they do, but usually they don't. (laughs) So how do we get that balance of not being having an overinflated ego, but still finding a way to package and and illustrate the value that we're bringing to an organization and to the broader world? Sure. Um, there's lots to unpack lots in there. Lots to unpack. Um, some of it is just figuring out, first of all, what what's actually important. So I'll talk about titles because I think they're not important, but the work you do and giving it visibility is very important. So when I hire, I look for, I call it smarts first, loyalty second, and experience a distant third. And the reason I try to hire that way is the smart, loyal person they may not have done the job you want them to do. And actually, I kind of love that. I always call it you're unconstrained by experience. So it's perfect. They have no preconceived idea of what it should look like. So they tend to be much more innovative, much more creative. The painful part is for about the first six to nine months in the job, they also are a little bit clueless. And it can be the blind (laughs) leading the blind if you have too many of that. Um, And so they need a lot of coaching. Like you have to buy in that this athlete is going to just emerge. And so it's almost, I can almost visually see it. If you graph it, right, the graph is kind of painful for about six to nine months. And then they just hit the accelerator pedal. And these are like the most wonderful people to surround yourself with. Because the more they do it, the more also they get the confidence that they can keep doing things they've never done before. Um, And so they will push you and push you and push you. And before you know it, they've leaped past you. And it's great. You just sit in their dust and look and say, I'm so proud. On the title thing, when I hire, I am very conscious of people who care about things like title or what sort of office am I going to get? I mean, most of that has kind of been depleted, certainly in Silicon Valley. I don't think I've had an office since I left Goldman Sachs. In fact, I barely have a desk these days. Um, But again, not super important. And and a title is very constraining because effectively, once you have it, that kind of says this is your box. Versus if you don't have a title, there's no box to play in. Pretty much, you know, people are like, well, why are you here? You are the head of, you know, small box. And you're like, no, actually, I don't have a title. I'm, I can do wherever there's a gap. Now, on the flip side of that, I do think women inherently don't often package and put forth their work. 
and some of it is this sense of like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to seem like one of those people. I don't want to be pushy. I, you know, blah, blah. I've heard everything. And so often how I flip it for women is like, forget about you. It's actually not even about you. Here's what happens when you show your work. When you show your work, first of all, it gets critique. And that's only a good thing because it's rare that any of us create something perfection first time through. So again, seek those diverse perspectives and look for people that will disagree with you because those are the best critiques to get. They make your work so much better. But then the next thing that happens is now people can build on your work. So I get frustrated when someone doesn't show this great thing that, you know, they've been noodling on for the last three months. If I think about a next door example, I'm like, get that work out there because how are we going to build on it and go faster? So one thing is your work itself accelerates the company. But frankly, again, role modeling, if you show that you're someone that isn't just stuck in their lane, that is maybe spending nights and weekends on some other great idea. It's not you trying to be like, you know, the good kid in school, like, hey, I want an A plus for my homework. It's actually that you're acting like an owner, and you are just hustling and pressing the company. And so I think when you frame it that way, a lot of women get out of their own way, finally. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's not tooting my own horn. Like people use that phrase all the time, like women should toot their own horn. So I'm like, for the sake of it, that'll just be like a clanging bell going off. And that actually is kind of annoying. But if you think of it more as in the spirit of how do I advance the company as fast as possible, how do I act like that owner, then you know, then your work can be seen. I think you can rise to the level that you're supposed to be at. And I think a lot of just the ener- the good energy gets unleashed. Mm-hmm. So just more of that and, and forget about the other things that actually don't matter as much. Compensation is probably the one thing that does matter. Because if you're having that sort of impact, there should be a fairness on the compensation front, too. And again, I think that's a place where women, certainly my experience of managing men and women, is men are very front-footed on that. They're always, no matter what you give them, it's never quite enough. So they always leave that meeting, you know, making sure that you know that you kind of disappointed them. And I'm sure they get outside and are kicking their heels like, woohoo, I got paid so much money. <laughs> um, but in that meeting, they're like, whereas women are very quick to be like, oh, okay, it makes me super uncomfortable. I don't like to talk about my comp, but, you know, I'm super embarrassed, but, you know, I can't feed my children right now. And, you know, it's like you got to get over that. Make the ask. If you have a lot of emotion inside, Try to contain it, go out of the room, whatever you need to do. I've cried in many a bathroom. I've cried in many a meeting, by the way, which is also fine. Women deal with stress differently. But if you can try to just zip it, like say your piece, practice it ahead of time, and then zip it. Silence is a wonderful thing. Let the other people respond. You have to leave the room for a period of time. But, you know, make the ask and don't be ashamed of that because I I do think that there is an inherent difference in how men and women really approach something like comp. Yeah. So you just said something, you said many things that were really, really interesting. But one thing that I want to drill down on is this notion of crying in mm-hmm. meetings, mm-hmm. because I'm quite sure people listening were like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened when you yeah. cried in a meeting? Yeah. So, you know, I think the first time I remember seriously having a moment at work where I felt like I lost all my composure was actually a compensation discussion um, still at Goldman Sachs. So banks, that's always a you know tension filled moment. And I think the fact I got so emotional really got through to people, A, how much it mattered, B, perhaps how little they had considered, you know, what what impact I was having. And so it didn't fix itself that year, but I think it really did fix itself in kind of coming years. And again, comp is just the output. It's really about can you get your hands on great work that's going to inspire you, that's actually going to have impact, and then be fairly compensated on the other side. So 
there it actually turned out for the best. Now, I had a female mentor, and she actually, in some ways, kind of, I think, a, a generation who fully believed in not letting loose in the meeting. She was like, the next time, you know, just, you know, call it for a moment, whatever it is you need to, re- you know, bring yourself back, or maybe go to the bathroom or whatever, which, interesting advice. But I found it actually later in my career, you know, particularly in my my last job, working a lot with someone like a Jack Dorsey, I feel like I've cried in front of Jack so many times. And, and part of it was understanding that um, my way of explaining when something had kind of reached that tipping point for me where I really, really, really cared and something I felt was super off, usually more related to, say, my values or what I thought we should be building, it was actually good for him to see how much I cared on that moment. And it might not have been in that precise moment or in that meeting that we got to the right answer, but it certainly kind of you know laid down the, hey, I can't ignore this. Sarah really cares about this. And so I think it is just a little how we're programmed or wired, right? Women rea- women's reaction to stress is often one that involves more tears and emotion. Men's can be much more anger, and those are hugely gender stereotypes. Absolutely. They're not for everyone. Right. But I think when you embrace it and kind of explain the why, I think it really does strengthen your position, not weaken it. And so I view it as actually a strength mechanism now, not as a moment of weakness. Mm-hmm. You said something a moment ago that I think is really important and deserves additional emphasis, and that is said slightly a slightly different way, that women should be very strategic about how they think about where they fit into an organization. Mm-hmm. As you were talking about yeah. ego, you were talking about really understanding the value that you add as it relates to the you know, sort of the strategy of the company or organization, mm-hmm. or more broadly, the impact that you're having more broadly. And I think that's such an interesting point um, that deserves more emphasis. It really is incredibly important. Here's what I've learned, mm-hmm. is that often I look at all of the things I have to do, and I feel like I have to accomplish all of them. And a great kind of mentor coach for me kind of said, hey, let's look at your to-do list a different way. Let's orient it around the things where you have the the most strength, have the biggest spike, um, and where you're going to have most impact on the organization. And let's focus there and try to make sure that every day you're spending 70, 80% of your time on that. And then there'll be some stuff that just has to get done. And there's going to be a bunch of stuff that kind of falls on the floor. And frankly, a lot of it can be more administrative, operational stuff that, you know, certainly I inherently want to make sure everything's perfect and pick up on that. Mm. And reminding myself, and and by the way, it's like a slippery slope. I kind of tend to start strong when I'm reminding myself. And so for that next week or two weeks, I am so strategic and I'm you know, really using my brain. And it might be that the output of all those hours of work is a paragraph, but it's a very important statement of maybe a strategy, maybe, you know, something I think the company needs to do. It might be an outreach to my board. And it may not seem like a lot of work, but the thinking to pare it down, right, to that succinct strategy is is a lot of brain power. But then, you know, the weeks go by and suddenly I find my whole days are filled with process and administration and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, why have I not outsourced this? Like, this other people can do. And so what's happening is I'm actually, it's a fallback mechanism. Like, when you're tired, it's easier to do all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And that way you still feel busy and productive member of society. But in actual fact, you're not doing justice to 
in my case next door because I'm not using the I'm not doing the really difficult thing and so I think generally for women um, first of all thinking that through every day so being kind of maniacal about prioritization prioritizing the most important things first um, and prioritizing the hard things don't let yourself off the hook um, but then also that's a moment in time when I think you don't stay within your you know your self imposed boundary because it's usually self-imposed and I get these wonderful you know emails from all the people that I've worked with next door before that square where people have really you know maybe spent weeks or months stewing on something and they take that time to write it and send it to you and it's often those moments where maybe you don't immediately are like oh yeah we should do that and you know x should run that it often it rarely happens that easily but what happens is they trigger something in your brain where you're like oh a big picture thinker. Oh, someone that's willing to look for the gap and fill it. Oh, someone that's willing to kind of really think outside the box here. And so when that next project comes around or the next job or that next gap, you know, is is evident, suddenly they are in the running Mm -hmm. to be that person to go do that. And so I love those moments. And so more of that, please, ladies, but gentlemen too. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So you touched on the notion of prioritization, and while you were not talking about work-life balance necessarily or work-life prioritization, as I like to call it, um, you're a mom of two kids, (laughs) and so obviously setting good priorities and boundaries is a necessity for any working person, male or female. Yep. How do you do that? And and what tends to fall by the wayside for you? What is what is the stuff that you just never quite get to? That would be nice to have, but you never get there. <laughs> sure. Um, so I will certainly not set myself up as some paragon of virtue on this front. First of all, it takes a village. I have a great partner and my husband. I have an amazing nanny that works with us. So I definitely lean on my takes a village, takes a community, my, my extended family too. But I do think you need to decide, like you can't, I don't think you can do everything. I would say for me, work is very important. It gives me a lot of energy. It's when I'm in my flow moment. So I know that about myself. Um, Family is also incredibly important. So I want to be a very present parent. I want to maximize the time I spend with my kids. And the third thing for me is, is health. Like I I am my better self when I am working out, when I am able to go take that hike or am able to do Pilates, kind of be my saving grace. I had really bad back problems. What doesn't get as much time, so to the prioritization point, I think we don't spend as much time with friends as we would like to. Um, we, we have a joke about our bus that you only have so much room on the bus to be with people. And our bus is kind of a mini bus at the moment. It might actually be a four-person carrier <laughs> because there's just not enough time in the day. So, you know, that does mean that um, there's many a Saturday night where I'm home alone with my husband, my two kids, and we're playing Scrabble or maybe watching a movie and maybe doing all of that. And sure, we don't have this vibrant social life, but it's the trade-off that I make. And I think there'll be time for that at different stages of life. At some point, my kids are going to want nothing to do with me, so I need to make sure I'm there for them. I think the other thing is making, you know, to your point about there's macro priorities that you make. So those are what I just discussed. And then there's micro priorities. So with my kids, for example, at the beginning of every school year, we look at the school calendar. We talk about what is the what are the one or two things that they absolutely want to make sure mom comes to. So for my daughter, it's usually the school play. She loves it every year. Um, my son, it's usually more sports-oriented. 
But then those go in the calendar like a board meeting. Like, I have as much chance of missing those. I'm probably more likely to miss a board meeting than miss the school play. And, you know, my EA is amazing at making sure that he reminds me that, hey, you have this coming up. And, you know, I, I, I used to think that sounded very unmotherly, like almost too clinical. But I realized, like, I have to view those time, that use of time as importantly, and actually to have it all on the same calendar. And I think sometimes people get into this, I used to be a little in hide mode, like maybe not let people know, be sneaking out. And now I'm actually very, it's actually an unleashing moment for me when I realized that I needed to be the role model that said, hey, I'm going to the school play. I'm leaving early, you know, that made it okay for other working parents. And so you'll hear me talk, if you work with me a lot about output, not input. And what I mean by that is set people goals, make them stretch. But then how they do it and when they do it is totally their prerogative. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is really important for diverse workplaces. So, you know, shame on me if you can do this job nine to four, right? Not a stretch goal. But if you need to, you know, I get up at five in the morning. So I work from like five to 6.30, a good hour and a half before my kids wake up because I know I want to try to make it home on the back end, maybe before a lot of my engineers leave the company because they're all night owls. But... I need to make it okay that people have to fit things in differently depending on where they are in their life. And also, frankly, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about prioritizing our kids, and it has become more socially acceptable to say, hey, I'm going to the school play. Mm -hmm. But if you're a young 20-some and you said, well, hey, I'm going on a date, some ways that's not as acceptable, and yet that also has to be part of life. And so I think societally we need to think about how do we help people prioritize what's important to them, help them do it, you know, do their work when it works for them. Understand that in some cases work does require teamwork, and so sometimes you have to be proximate. But the other great thing about technology, right, I kind of started this conversation very down on technology, but the great thing is you can actually get a lot of work done kind of either as you're moving Mm -hmm. to and from, I do a lot of work in the back of a car, or you can do it on the fly. Like there's just a lot of ways technology has freed us as well to be able to go do the other things that are important to us. Yeah, it really made the notion of being a working parent possible. Totally. Especially for women, I think. Oh, I mean, this Saturday morning, I I mean, I had to drive for almost an hour and a half, two hours to get to a soccer game, uh, which in and of itself was fun. But for that hour where the team was warming up, I was in the car with my computer up on my on my phone network, writing no, not, my not driving, n- not driving. No, no, no. <laughs> sitting in the car park, um, literally writing. I write a weekly letter to to my team, um, to the whole company, and you know I could get that done in the car, shut that thing down, watch the game, drive home. You know, and I feel like I got the the integration, work and and personal came together yeah. successfully in that case. It's kind of a perfect day. It was a perfect day. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, it's been such a pleasure. Um, We ask every person who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice or a life hack or a mantra. You've given us tremendous advice and perspective already, but if you had to boil it down to just one thing that's kind of your North Star, what would that be? Can I say two things? I'm cheating. Um, The first, it won't be surprising given what we talked about, is take risks. So absolutely, just embrace that adrenaline rush. Really ask yourself, are you getting it? Like at least, maybe daily is too much, but at least a couple of times a week, do you feel like 
you have that fear of, will I be able to do it? Because then the high of getting it done is so incredible. And, you know, why waste your life, you know, being comfortable? Like, that's a big one for me. And then the second is to do it with a sense of optimism. Like, I truly believe that when you lead people, you can lead them with your brain and you can be the smartest person in the room and, you know, have all the analysis at your fingertips. But when you lead people with their hearts, they will follow you into the fire. And so I think you need to do both. And leaders, great leaders tend to be great optimists. So there's a wonderful quote from Seamus Heaney, who, great Irish poet, actually effectively would have been my neighbor. We're a little different generation. But he has this, actually it's on his gravestone, so it's actually his epitaph. It says, walk on air despite your better judgment. And I love that because every day when I wake up, I think about, you know, how do I keep that sense of optimism? How do I walk on air? Yeah. Sarah, it was amazing. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. I really you. appreciate Very it. Very generous with your perspective. We really appreciate it. Not at all. To learn more about Sarah, visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There will in- include links to Nextdoor, as well as to some other information about Sarah and some photographs from today's visit. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to let us know. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks so much for listening.